Hello, everyone, and welcome to the cold open of the Comics Collective. My question this week, and sorry, no stories about my downstairs areas. I know how much <laughs> everyone loves them and is, is itching to hear more. Oh, oh no. That You're was welcome. vile. <laughs> You're welcome. But I wanted to open with kind of a discussion today about what our favorite fantasy things were. It doesn't necessarily have to be a novel. For me, it's going to be a novel because I'm really smart and sexy. But like, if yours is a movie, you can't admit that you're a little bit dumber than me and say a movie, but that's going to be okay. Um, I think fantasy can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. And Die, the book that we're covering today, is a huge celebration of not only many of the great fantasy writers of all time and what those stories can mean to us, but the drive with role-playing games to be a part of that story. And so I think, because my, my real answer will be talked about in depth in the episode, um, I don't want to get right into it. So I'll, I'll talk up. about, yeah, I'll talk about a little bit of a runner-up in the Redwall series. Um... <laughs> I loved those books as a kid. I can, I still vividly remember the cover of Redwall on the hardcover edition that I read. I loved the mix of anthropomorphic animals, swords and sorcery. I liked the setting of the castle. I thought that the story was paced in a fun, serial way that honestly foreshadowed my later love of comic books in that I liked seeing new characters and plot lines introduced and bringing back old favorites. It was really magical, honestly. And yeah, I I love Redwall. I recently got, recently, like a couple years ago, picked up the first copy of it for my youngest sister. I don't think she ever read it, but it does exist she at my parents' house. I don't think she reads. She doesn't. <laughs> no. Books are for nerds. Yeah, she don't read. That is very true. Um, and do you... I think I accidentally stole yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. Because we're the same person, so of course you would steal my story. Oh, I can... Redwall was very, very important to me growing up. And I think... It's hard because the other fantasy series that was really important to me growing up has kind of soured a little bit because it's about a magic boy with a weird scar on his forehead. But we don't talk about that one anymore. So oh, it's weird because I think... I saw Lord of the Rings when I was a kid, but I, it never like clicked for me. And the one that I'm thinking of now, I'm actually going to kind of throw to Lexi because I know Lexi loves this one too. And <laughs> I, was just, Stardust. I was just going to say, Anne, are we talking about another movie that we have yeah, screamed yeah. over text about to each other? Absolutely. Dude, that fucking movie slaps. It's such a good movie. <laughs> but, okay, I have to tell, like, a mini story about this movie because I swear I watched it when I was, like, five. I'm not even going to lie. I think I was literally five years old. And for the longest time, I was fully convinced that it was a fever dream that I made up because my whole family <laughs> freaking... <laughs> they... Oh, my gosh. They convinced me that it wasn't real because my babblings about it for years were like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, sexy witch? What? What are you talking about? <laughs> Stars? Like, what? Until I found it on Netflix and I was like, you bitches better look at this. And my parents were like, 
Okay, you weirdo. <laughs> like it's fine. It's just a, it's just a good one. It's a good one. Yeah, for anyone who hasn't checked out the movie, which is absolutely fantastic, it's got Daredevil in the lead, Charlie Cox, and um, who? What's um? Michelle Pfeiffer. Okay. Yeah, Michelle. Michelle Pfeiffer is the sexy witch. Yes, she is the sexy witch. <laughs> and <laughs> Dallas, fun fact, Stardust is based on a Neil Gaiman book. That is promising. I've so, gotten very into Neil Gaiman lately. Dallas, you've yeah. watched it. You have watched it. I have seen Stardust. I watched it with Lexi, and I liked it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Acknowledgement that you have taste. That, okay. That's your <laughs> one you get this episode. Oh, good. Perfect. <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's about this guy who's so madly in love with this woman that he's like, I'm going to go get you that falling star. And if I do it, will you marry me? And she's like, eh, sure, I guess. So he goes and crosses this magical wall into this little fantasy world where the falling star actually turns out to be a living, breathing woman. And the problem comes when you find out in this world, if you get and eat the heart of a star, you basically become immortal. So there's some very angry, sexy witches after her and he starts falling in love with this literal fallen star and it's really cute and, and wholesome. Mm-hmm. And it has a two-headed elephant for like three seconds. And, mm-hmm. and unicorns. And unicorns. <laughs> and the best pirate ever. Oh, yep. Mm-hmm. Captain Shakespeare. Isn't there a flying, there a flying ship? Yep. Yes, Captain Shakespeare. And they harvest lightning. <laughs> If that isn't the most magical thing that's ever happened, I don't know what is. Oh, Robert De Niro. Yep. <laughs> Queen. I feel like I gotta watch that again. I remember. Dude, so you have to. It's movie such night. a fever dream of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good one. Okay. Um. So you both are using your pick to talk about the same thing. Mm-hmm. Word. Word. I respect it, honestly. Um, <laughs> I will super shout out a book that Anne showed me, uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. That book is incredible. I loved it so much. And I need Alexis to read it because it is so good. Just put it on the um, lineup and I'll make it there eventually. It's very <laughs> and make, actually, up, make up a day. <laughs> I think a, a secret influence on Die that I very much loved was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And just mm-hmm. the general Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. I, I never finished the series because I kind of lost interest once the main cast switched over. But the books I did read, I really liked quite a bit. Uh, and I honestly will probably go back to them at some point in, in my little life. <laughs> it's a good plan. I like this plan. But yeah, so those are some of our favorite fantasy things. And now... After this super just beautiful editing job putting in this here song. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective. The weekly comic book podcast where we read and discuss a graphic novel. I am your co-host, the Tolkien white guy, Dallas. (laughs) I'm Alexis. And I'm walking here. I'm back from New York. 
I took Manhattan. Everything was great. It was so much fun. I Thank actually you again, didn't Dallas see her. and Addie for having I me. I didn't even see her once the whole weekend. She just <laughs> she just came and kidnapped your wife and there. left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Honestly, word word that was a little bit how it went. Um, snuck, took me to see a movie, and I just snuck out and saw the city all on my own. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but this week we are discussing Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hong's fantasy masterpiece, mm-hmm. Die. D-I-E, a very hard book to recommend to people when they say, what should I read? And you just respond, die. And they're like, oh, sorry. My bad. (laughs) That's how I felt reading it off on last week's podcast. I was like, die? What the fuck is this? Um, So what the fuck this is, is (laughs) Kieran Gillen and Stephanie Hahn's love letter to classic fantasy stories, Mm -hmm. classic fantasy authors, role-playing games and specifically Dungeons and Dragons. Um, This book came out from 2018 into 2020. It consists of 20 issues, five, five, four issue arcs, 20 issues for 20 sides of the dice. I mean, come on. Brilliant. It took me so long to put that together. Who could have seen it coming? Not, not me. I did not. Big brain, huge brain, galaxy brain. <laughs> um, before we get a little bit more into the more structured part of the podcast, what were our initial reactions to die? It slapped so hard. It was a good one. <laughs> our our playlist, our playlist, our list has been straight bangers. I hope y'all realize how blessed you are that they're making me read these. Right. Yeah, we we pick good stories. I'm glad you like this one because you were, I believe you're the only person here who hasn't played a like game of D and D before. Is that correct? Never, never, never in my life. Uh, yeah, that's actually where <laughs> I was when I first started reading it too. I read the first volume, never having played any D and D before ever. So it's like I was following along, but I'm like, okay, I kind of get the vibe. I think I understand enough about what's going on. But then I got to play some games with like Dallas and some other friends. And then coming back to it now, it's definitely a different experience approaching it from that RPG like um, mind frame. And it's it's really, really interesting all the way it's, it plays on classic role playing games and on the ways that it plays on classical literature, which was so, so cool to see. I just have to say right off the bat, I did not realize what RPG stood for uh, literally until you just said it out loud. And then it and then it clicked in my mind. I was like, this is weird. This is a weird word they're thrown in there, but okay, I'll just ignore it. <laughs> the Uprig. Repug. Well, Repug. No, I I I read, I read it as RPG, but as a different definition of that. So I was like, this is really dark, really fast. No, it looks like, oh, missile launchers. Great. <laughs> rocket propelled, like, okay. She's like, rocket propelled grenade. Excellent. <laughs> if you knew my father, you would understand. <laughs> <laughs> I am a tactical weapon waiting to happen, apparently. How are they struggling with the dragons? They have RPGs. Exactly. I was like, blow that bitch up. What? I don't remember that in the time machine. 
<laughs> exactly. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I need to play some Dungeons and Dragons now. Yeah. We it kind of made me want to. I'll slide mm-hmm. that in there too. <laughs> I mean, we we play every couple weeks. I I am a huge fan of Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, I know. I have been playing since college. Uh, my first my very first semester of college, we were all very depressed little boys living far from home in my apartment. And one of our friends said, should we all chip in on the D&D starter pack and just see if we like it? It's only 60 bucks. And if all six of us pay for it, it's only $10. We can see if we can like it. And we were all like, I mean, we don't have any other friends, so sure. <laughs> and so on a fateful Friday night, we unlocked the Dungeons & Dragons starter kit, which, by the way, is an excellent product. You open it up, and it has a, a rule book. It has a storyline for you to do for the first time that you just get to like follow the major points, and it's all balanced and great. It shows you how to make characters. It comes with dice in it for everyone to play. It's literally packaged like a board game. Like, if you're ever like, I would like to dabble with D&D, it's wonderful. They literally sell, like, board game-sized box of everything you could possibly need to play with four to six players. It's very fun. And this has been an ad for Hasbro, by the way. Um, <laughs> Are we game play? I was, was going to say, does it come with your own elf costume? I hope it does. <laughs> uh, no. I <laughs> one, one size separately. fits all. Specifically Santa's elf. It's only a thong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, I put on my green leafy thong and I grabbed those six different kinds of dice Mm -hmm. and was transported. Dungeons and Dragons is my favorite game in the world. Like video games, board games, card games, everything included. Magic the Gathering is a close second. Also from the same company, Wizards of the Coast have... My, they own this ass, frankly. <laughs> but just the things you can do with Dungeons & Dragons is so fun to me. Like if I, I mean, Anne knows, she's been a part of a session that I've I've ran. If I want to live out the plot of the movie Alien with my friends, I can on a given night. If I want my friends to all come together and help contribute to different layers of an Indiana Jones style narrative, exploring a temple. We can, if we want to go and fight classic dragons, we can, it's, it's at your fingertips. And I think my very favorite quote about Dungeons and Dragons is that, and it's, I, it was fun to read it in this book again, but D and D is just a conversation with friends. And I think that's what makes it so magical is the social aspects and the way that Kieran Gillen was able to make that the whole book, that this whole book was just a series of conversations between friends was magic. It's kind of an aggressive conversation. (laughs) You know, you have disagreements as friends sometimes. Yeah. Like listen here, you little bitch. (laughs) Sometimes you want to bash your friends, face in with the mace of rage. It's yep. fine. We've mm-hmm. all Just been light, there. Light them on fire. Just do it. <laughs> Seek sick <laughs> gods on their asses. Yeah. yeah. Who hasn't? Who hasn't? That's mood. So, Anne, do mm-hmm. you want to describe for our listeners sort of what a rough outline of die is, and maybe like a quick thing about 
each of the characters because I feel yes. like that that is the solid basis to start talking about why this book is so great. Absolutely. So, if just in case we've lost anyone with just talking about RPGs, let me pull you back into what the story as a whole is like because it's pretty simple if you look at it from one perspective. If you've seen the movie Jumanji, either the old one or the new one, then you'll understand the concept of playing a game that has very real consequences because it drags you into it and makes you a part of it. This is what that this is what that is, except in the context of like a D&D role-playing game. There's these kids who start this game when they were very young. They get trapped inside a fantasy world for two years, come back on the other side, can't speak of what happened. Some of them are missing limbs. Some of them have been changed. And one of them is missing. And this continues for several years until the group is eventually brought back together by the reemergence of the die that they used to play this game to begin with. And they are sucked back in to quote unquote, finish the game that they started so long ago. And there's a lot of elements of Jumanji in there. There's a lot of elements of um, Stephen King's it. If you're a fan of that story, that was also uh, an influence going into this one. And we have our core six characters who are Ash, who is our, De facto lead, Ash is a man who, in the game, plays, whose avatar is a woman who's also named Ash, and she, in the game, is a dictator. Is it a dick? No, it's a director, right? No, it's dictator. It's It's dictator? dictator. Okay, yeah. She dictates what happens in the game. Everything she says, she can make people obey her. Like, if she says, um, like, sit, you have to sit like a dog, because that's that's how she rolls. She determines the rules of play. There is her sister, Angela, who is... Ooh, how is she described in the book? Like, a techno... She's got this very Tron um, feel to her. They said that she was an elf, if that elf was designed by the creator of Cyberpunk. Love it. Yeah. word <laughs> that was i think that was my favorite i think her design is one of my favorites in this whole thing i feel very seen by angela but i'll get into that later oh i'm so excited we also have um it's mike right as the grief knight matt matt sorry close oh, almost there and matt is the grief knight he turns his emotions into power and his sword basically fuels on his grief. The more sad he is, or the sadder he is, the stronger he is, which is kind of depressing, but also pretty cool at the same time. Um, you see lots of moments of emotional shifting in him, which is really, really interesting to follow as the story progresses. We also have our discount guy gardener in the form of Chuck. <laughs> and he is, um, quote unquote, the fool. And he's just kind of the guy in the party who runs into every situation Head first, waving a sword, and just kind of, you know, fingers crossed, it'll turn out okay. Everything's fine. And then we also have um, Izzy, who is the Godbinder. And she, all of her powers, she's basically like a cleric who calls upon different gods to <laughs> pay debts and do shit for her. She's just like, hey, um, god of kick ass, go kick ass. And the god goes and kicks ass. But. 
it's not always that simple because sometimes she does owe the gods some favors and that can be a pain in the ass. And finally, we have the kid that went missing whose name is Solomon and he comes back later as an evil game master slash vampire because he kind of got stuck in the game for a little bit and that kind of messed him up. Just a little bit though. Just a little messed up just, just to shake things up. And we have this fun dynamic between all these characters that's set up so wonderfully in the first issue that plays out through the entire um, run. I love the dynamics between all these characters. I especially love, just looking at my focus in the series is Ash for a lot of very personal reasons. I love the conflict that Ash and Izzy have where it's these two that, for different insecurities that they both have in their kids, kind of butted heads. And even though that Ash kind of always wanted to be Izzy's friend, um, forbidden feelings that Ash had for um, Solomon and just <laughs> ways that Chuck knew that he was a bad person, but never really wanted to stop it until it was too late. And yeah. What did all of you think about these six characters and who were your favorites? I honestly loved them all. I thought they were very endearing in their in like own individual ways. Like I really liked getting different bits and pieces from all of them throughout the whole story. And I feel like it doesn't all get wrapped up until the very end, which is kind of fun. Like, it all just gets nicely wrapped into a little bow in, like, the literal last issue, which is kind of fun. Um, But I would have to say I feel very seen by Angela and, like, her... um, And I'll mention it a little bit more later, but uh, I kind of feel like she had a the younger sister, more maternal trope. Mm-hmm. I felt like, and I felt very seen by that as someone who feels like I deserve a plaque for raising my younger siblings, but <laughs> it's all right. But no, I felt very seen by her and I thought she was very fun and I loved her character design and her badass robot arm, which is a little spooky as well. She goes, I didn't realize literally trading my arm in the game would make me wake up and not have one in real life. Spooky. Yeah. The, the consequences they face in this game are chilling when you find them out for the yeah. first time. Yeah, real. <laughs> I believe there's even a mention in, like, the towards the end of the book that, like, when they came out of the game, blood was splattering. So it does not seem like that wound was closed off. She no. just, no arm. Mm-mm. Very, very nifty of them. Thanks, Di. We appreciate it. Can't explain it at all. I think the consequences to the character's actions is something that makes Di unique and very clearly comes from Kieran Gillen's love of RPG games. Because when you play any amount of D&D, you very quickly learn that every badass thing that you can do is as hard as it is badass. Like, I remember... One of the most iconic moments I've ever had in D&D. I felt like a god. <laughs> I I was not the dungeon master at this point. I have become the de facto dungeon master for like all my friends. And so... <laughs> I... <laughs> still thinking Sunstone. Sunstone still there. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. When he said that out loud, I was like, don't call yourself that in public, honey bun. Don't do that. <laughs> Sorry, my little my little sister is showing. Continue. <laughs> well, plunder me, dungeon. <laughs> <laughs> so there I was not being the DM, and I one of my favorite characters I played was a monk that like had really high dexterity, just kind of carried like a long sword, 
And I, I love this guy. And there was this moment where, fun fact, if you're playing D&D, don't go to the water. <laughs> because the book, The Monster Guide, has so many fucking fun sea monsters that the DM never gets to use. Because you're always in, like, the mountains or, like, in a desert or at, in some town. And so they can never be like, here's a kraken. And so the <laughs> second you're like, we're going to go over by that cow puddle. They're like, surprise, the cow puddle has a leviathan. <laughs> Every time, without fail. And sure enough, we went by a cow puddle, and surprise, there was a giant crocodile. And so this giant crocodile was charging at us, and I decided to to use this ability that I had to, like, divert the crocodile. And we definitely use, like, the rule of cool here a little bit. And again, I think Kieran Gillen uses the rule of cool, that, like, sometimes the rules are like, this should be impossible. But if it's badass enough, your DM will say, absolutely, you can do it. <laughs> and so I was like, if I roll high enough, can I like hit this crocodile just the right way that it's going to flip over the top of me like the truck in the dark night? And he was like, absolutely, you can. He's like, but you got to roll like an 18 or higher. And I was like, oh boy, oh boy. And he's like, and if you miss, he's like, this crocodile's coming at you full speed. You will die. He's like, your character will die. And I was just kind of like, death or glory, bitch. And I pulled it off. And it was the happiest, probably my happiest moment of college. And I got married during college. So <laughs> truly incredible. And I just, I feel like every character kind of gets a badass moment. But again, Kieran Gillen makes it difficult. Because, yes, Ash can make anyone do anything, but she can only do it one at a time. And oh, so, was... which is brilliant. Yeah. Izzy can do anything with the gods, but they will come back to bite her in the ass. Uh, Matt can be a nuclear bomb, but he has to turn inward and embrace a very dark side of himself that he does not want to interact with. Um, Chuck has to do the most unreasonable, bullheadish, dickish things to pull off miracles. You know, and we can see that Saul, the DM, this game has, like, consumed him entirely, you know? And, or even, I really liked, I'm sorry, I forget the little sister's name. That you Angela. Love. Angela. Angela basically get has to be an addict to be what mm-hmm. she wants to be. She has to, like, go get her daily hit in order to play the game. And so it's just the checks and balances of die are fascinating with these classes. And it makes me very excited. Kieran Gillen is currently writing all through the publication of this comic. He was running a beta of die, the RPG where you could go and you could play it and send him notes like this works great. This doesn't work so great. And he is finalizing writing out the player handbook and the monster guide. And I, I am signed up to get the notification the day that it becomes available. So I can okay, okay. So purchase. we're all playing. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, that's what I'm hearing from this. This is this is clear. Yep. Deal. But I I love those instincts in a fantasy story because at the end of the day, a lot of fantasy stories they have these big triumphant moments, but they don't always have the consequences that Die had. And I think in those consequences, we really meet our characters. If that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it keeps the stakes real through the whole thing. Like I think about just the first. Um, volume the first arc they have 
one of the things they do to try and end the game and get rid of Solomon, who starts off as the, the big bad in Volume 1, is they sacrifice Glass Town, which mm -hmm. is one of the, the safe places in Die. They let Eternal Prussia come in and just completely destroy everything. They take down the defenses, and they realize very quickly that that was bad because now that they have <clears throat> access to Glass Town, the end game starts for Die. So they took out who they thought was the big bad, but they actually gave the real big bad the, the keys to the city, literally. So I thought that was a really great way to handle that in the, the, the things they do actually progress the enemy's agenda just as quickly. And it keeps the game going because of their actions. So Lex, my question for you, there's no way that I can read this book without just seeing it as an RPG game. Mm-hmm. So you, as someone who has not played a tabletop RPG game, how do you feel like this works as a fantasy story? Honestly, I know you love the genre. I do. I do love the genre, and I feel like I'm very familiar with things like this. The easiest way that I could kind of explain it, like, and how I kind of figured it out at first, I would say, was I got, like, major Narnia vibes from it. I mean, we kind of talked about that already, but, like, just this alternate world where... There are so many, like, there's so much stakes. There's every, these, these different kingdoms, these different worlds, these different leaders. And, like, it's a whole universe just by itself with these outside characters who have their outside knowledge of what's going on. And I thought that was really cool as well. You want to know my very favorite nod to the Chronicles of Narnia was that the Little Englanders, who were the hobbits from Lord of the Rings, their king was Aslan. Yep. Because J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are best friends. Love it. Did you know that J.R.R. Tolkien stole the Chronicles of Narnia to go get it published because C.S. Lewis was such yes. a perfectionist that he wouldn't ever publish it? Didn't they, like, make a heist? Oh. Yeah, so there was a group of friends that were all professors up at Oxford, and Tolkien published Lord of the Rings, and it was a success. And the other friends who are lost to history now, to, at least to my history, but they published books that <laughs> were successful. But C.S. Lewis had, like, major imposter syndrome and was like, my book's not as good. And so half of the group of friends distracted him while the other half snuck into his house, stole the manuscripts, and just went and took them to a publisher. And we're like, it's done, C.S. Do it. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Why, why am I the same person as C.S. Lewis? <laughs> it's fair. I do like the J.R.R. Tolkien's one note for C.S. Lewis was... Don't you think you're hitting him a little over the head with the Christianity? And, <laughs> no. And I want to turn to J.R.R. Tolkien and be like, have you read Return of the King? <laughs> I was like, your whole third act is the resurrection king. <laughs> he, he's like, like yeah, but, you, but, but it was smooth, right? It was, it was stealthy? Yeah, he's like, Stuck I it. buried my Christianity under one layer. <laughs> um... Yeah, so something... Hey, oh, you oh go. I was going to say, Dallas, who is your favorite out of the group? Uh, I mean... Oh, yeah, you never answered that. I think Ash is really compelling, obviously, but this time through, for me, I found Matt to be really compelling. Okay. Because, well, I, I don't feel like I suffer from chronic depression. Um, I, I spend a lot of time with like my psychology minor and then just personal interest studying mental health, mental health trends, 
perceptions of mental health in the modern world. And I found it really interesting to make the most powerful characters someone who has to embrace negative emotions that Western society teaches us to shun. Because I think in our efforts to to recognize and destigmatize, in quotation marks, mental health issues, we have also very much put a good and bad on certain emotions. Mm-hmm. And we have taught people to run away from the, quote, bad emotions. And something that I have been really fascinated in recently has been the positive aspects of embracing negative emotion in the same way you do positive emotion that to feel to feel anger to feel sadness to feel jealousy to feel all these things we've been taught to push down forever um within boundaries of not harming other people around you but they they serve purposes for human for humans we feel them for a reason you feel sadness because your body is trying to release chemicals to soothe you you know you uh there was a really interesting study done that demonstrated that the primary purpose of crying is to be an outward expression to the group that you need help and love that like we literally have something built in us to say like please help me i need you and it was really interesting for me i i work really hard to not get angry um, it was interesting though, the psychologists today are pushing towards the fact that anger can be a self-esteem emotion that is you saying, I deserve better than I'm being treated right now. And so like, again, as long as you don't lash out and put someone else down, it is perfectly valid to be upset about something and say, I deserve better than this. And so I... I really like the idea of the very most powerful character in the game, in my opinion, um, being someone who had to wrestle with sadness and anger. But And then I also, I like the triumphant moments at the end of, of saying, like, depression is a liar. Because at the end of the day, it's it's easy for me to talk about embracing negative emotions because I don't feel like I experience chronic periods of those emotions. You know, and I'm like, if you do experience chronic periods of depression, if you do feel like there's an imbalance in how you experience emotion, there, there are great resources. Um, I, I know not everyone has the opportunity, but therapy has been a big help for me. Uh, Medication can be a big help for people there. There has been such a big push to help people work through what's going on inside of you. And there's absolutely no shame in that. There's, there's, there can be a triumphant feeling of finding control in your life. Um, and I, I really liked seeing Matt, adult Matt with the tools that he's learned through years of therapy, learning to embrace those emotions, but also put them in their place when they become too big. So he was my favorite. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. What can I say? I'm very neat. <laughs> um, like dweeb. I know. It's me, Dweebus. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about characters. Does anyone else have anything they want to say about 
the like sort of broad strokes characters. We can get into specifics and why they impacted us either here or later. Um, does anyone have anything they feel like they want to say about characters before I sort of shift the conversation? Just broad strokes. Cause there's, there's a lot that I have to say about Ash specifically. I really appreciate that this is a story where all the characters feel solidly like main characters. I think everyone got their times to shine. I think everyone had really solid arcs that got resolved by the end. I think that everyone had really great moments where they would interact with everyone else in the group. And they all had so many different unique functions that they served, not just in the narrative, but also as part of a party. I thought that getting to see different talents and different sacrifices that sacrifices that they make along the way was really really awesome and it feels like no one's like an afterthought and even we get development later from characters like solomon who starts off as such a kind of just like the mwahaha i'm the generic dm bad guy and we get to see a lot come from him as the story goes on and it's just it's such a masterfully crafted story to be especially with the the goal of being finished in 20 issues exactly it was not a single page was wasted. And I think that's a sign of a true master. I absolutely agree. Uh, any more broad strokes from you, Lex, before we move on? Um, I, I don't know. I kind of, I, I definitely agree with Anne. I feel like every single character was interesting in their own way. And I also have to say that every single one of their costumes slapped as well. If I had any of them, I'd be like, yeah, mm-hmm. all right. Ash is a bad bitch. I'm just going to say it. I think that's a really great transition into talking a little bit about Stephanie Hans and the design oh. of the world of Die, the artwork of Die, the color work of Die. Um, Lexi, this is a pretty different art style than what we've seen before. What? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about Stephanie Hans? I loved this. I loved it. I love the freaking... I just have to honorable mention to Ash's Phantom of the Opera masks. Go for her. It's a woman of taste right there. (laughs) Just the single eye mask. I'm like, yeah, that's how you know you're dark and brooding right there. But I don't know. It just... I loved the way that each of the world, like the different, I guess, faces of the die world were portrayed like I loved how you could you could tell where you were based off of what's going on and I don't know I that's that's kind of vague but um I don't know I just I feel like you're right it's nothing like I've ever seen before with the comics that we've read and I really loved it I felt like it was the perfect mix of like ethereal magic fantasy world with that other side of like dark brooding depressed war times like i thought it was really really cool i i really like stephanie han style for this story specifically i think she has this wonderful ability to make things feel very dreamlike if that makes sense i like the way that the colors will bleed out through objects it almost has like that you're driving the highway at night and it's raining so the lights are kind of just like glaring everywhere kind of look and nothing feels solid nothing feels real and in the moments when you're in the real world at the beginning at the ends of the story it's 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 a solid art style but the moment you get to die and we get that first 
two-page spread of the the characters just standing there in like this red mist and the world just morphs around them into something foreign but exciting and just it's breathtaking it's a it's a page that literally just sucks all the air out of you because it's beyond beautiful it's i i literally haven't stopped thinking about that page from the second i saw it Mm -hmm. i i don't know why it didn't impact maybe it did but i read this first issue when it came out and so reading it again this last week i got to that page and i was like i haven't seen something that hits this hard in months like this is insane it's, I want it framed on my wall. I want it forever emblazoned everywhere I look. It's the moment the book becomes real. The colors feel like they, they shift. Everything before is very, very, like, muted and blue and just very casual. And then all of a sudden the page is just swarmed with red and everything feels real. And it's the... I, I love when art serves the perfect gateway to change the tone of a story. And that's exactly what this one did. Absolutely. I just had to. I just had to go back and look at the picture because I was like, I don't remember it being that cool, but it is that cool. I promise. I can. I can attest to that. <laughs> but I'm like I, looking at it right now, and Matt's face. If if we could say that one character hates this world more than anybody else, it's Matt, hundred percent. He's just like standing and looking at the the mm-hmm. evil sword. Like this is gonna fucking suck. Already, oh, yeah. you can see it in his face. Everybody else is kind of like, okay, okay, cool. Not happy about it, but it's cool. But Matt so is I, not happy about it. Not at all. I think that's also one of the magical parts about that scene is just it does so much heavy lifting because you see Matt who looks so depressed. Ash looks like she's just contemplating. The first thing she does is she looks at herself. And then you have Chuck there who's just stretching. Like, he's like, yeah, "Yeah, I've been waiting for this for years. Let's go kick some ass. Yeah, and you also have Angela in the background like, oh, I have an arm again. That's weird. That's trippy. She doesn't know how to deal with that. This is a book all about interpersonal relationships. And a lot of it is sold through facial expressions and minor body language tweaks and you cannot accomplish that kind of storytelling without a master like Stephanie Hans. Mm-hmm. Many of the most powerful moments in this book have no words at all and you know everything that's going on in the page. I think as well Stephanie Hans ability to channel so many different literary styles into her artwork Mm -hmm. to make portions feel like you're in a Tolkien novel to make portions feel like you're in the Bronte sisters imagination to make you feel like you're in HP Lovecraft's horrible dreams Mm -hmm. to feel like you're right there by HG Wells watching the war of the worlds (laughs) and but then also to somehow blur the edges between all of those to make it very clear that it all exists in this steampunk fantasy world of die is brilliant brilliant work yeah it was i remember the first time we see one of the tripods appear on page and that was before hd wells had even been mentioned and i just knew instantly just from looking at him like okay we're gonna see wells that's what's coming next that is a thousand percent his style that is ripped out of the pages of the book but 
it doesn't feel like it's out of place in this world. And that to combine all these into one just hodgepodge of the perfect <laughs> um, literature stew, I guess, is just phenomenal. And I don't think people understand how much work an artist has to put in to making stuff like that happen. Because they have to be able to extract all these emotions, all these tones, all these themes just from a single script. And communications back and forth with the author. It just It's so much work that they carry on behind the scenes that I don't think they get enough credit for. I also think they're in, in monthly comic books... Um, there, there's often like an issue of, of same face or outside of costumes. You can't really tell who anybody is, Mm -hmm. but like, there are a lot of panels here where it's just somebody's face and you never have to guess who it is. And I also, I think they do a pretty good job of representing a lot of different kinds of people in this story. Uh, I feel like. Die is a book that you can read and see yourself in many different characters. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's something that's going to make it last the test of time. Because ultimately, while my favorite fantasy novel of all time, uh, The Lord of the Rings, is brilliant, I think those movies are the greatest adaptation of all time. It is ultimately a story about a bunch of white men going on a quest with three major female characters and even major is quite the stretch. And so for Die to put someone who is exploring the ideas of gender as the narrator to put people of different races and ethnicities together in powerful main roles, Die immediately sets itself apart from the classics that it references in inviting people to be a part of fantasy worlds. I completely agree. And there's a lot in here that's handled very, very well. Like, it's... The way I've always kind of thought about it is, like, there's a way that representation is handled in comics where it feels like sometimes it's it's there because it's there and that's fine. But in this, I like the way that themes like gender and sexuality are expressed in more nuanced and realistic ways. Like, I like the fact that Angela, part of her story is realizing that she was bisexual at such an older age and how that played into everything going wrong with her family and just about how, like, her kids reacted to it and how she handled that. I thought that was a heartbreaking story, but also one that we don't get to see a lot, where it's like someone has to deal with finding themselves at such a a late age, quote unquote late age. She's like in her thirties when this happens, but it's, it was really, really fascinating. I thought it was handled with a lot of care. Sorry. I keep like, I was muting myself and unmuting myself like six times in a row. That was my bad, everyone. (laughs) But no, I, I agree. And also I thought it was, really fun to kind of, I mean, to start where we're at the very beginning, it was kind of cool to see where everybody ended up with their different levels of their trauma. Like they all came from the same experience and like how they were, where they were different at the end. And even how that helped them when they were put back into the, the die world. 
um, and how the those real life experiences with how they coped with their trauma molded them into becoming better characters and having more depth to them. Um, because I feel like to use the, the example that kind of jumped out to me the most, like you could say, and I feel like it's kind of insinuated that Izzy, she kind of says it herself too. She's like, I've got n- nothing going for me in mm-hmm. real life. She's like, and she's kind of the initial person who's like, no, I don't, we're not done here yet. We're not leaving yet. She's that first person to kind of like vocalize that feeling. And I feel like that's why she was so quick to do that. And I feel like it helped like her, her journey helped mold everybody else to having their character arcs as well. Mm -hmm. And I feel like they all were very intermingled with that. They all helped each other get to where they were at the end, which I thought was very cool. Um, and yeah, it's just very. It was just very interesting to me to see how the individual characters, without knowing it, they shaped where it all ended up. Yeah, I thought. I thought it was also a really interesting choice to show at the end of their first session of die. Uh, Ash used the voice to ensure that no one could talk about the experience after the fact. And we can see how this traumatic experience, when only held inside and not shared, not talked about, not worked through, really warped and hurt the lives of every single person. Even Matt, who I would argue is the most put together at the outset of the story, we begin to see in the story that a lot of that is a candy shell around some deep hurt. And so... Over the course of Die, we see people and we see a story that is essentially about taking ownership of the hard parts of our life. We see every single character have an arc where they accept who they are and they begin to work towards being the kind of person they want to be. And therefore, we see at the end of the story with the ability to talk about what's going on and having vocalized this trauma, they're all in better places. Like as dark and as spooky and scary as die can be at the end of the day, every character comes out better for it. And I think it is largely because they choose to speak about the issues that they're having. They choose to face them and, everybody kind of gets that moment where they have to be honest about their emotions, their traumas and what they need from the group. And I think that's a really, really cool message to be at the center of your fantasy story. Mm -hmm. I, excuse me. I completely agree. And to go off Lexi point, I think there's a very, very specific reason why the two that chose to stay were Ash and Izzy and it has to do everything with what they needed from the game, or at least what they thought they needed. Because Izzy, she had so many regrets about being not the best person to her friends and about, you know, just what she's done with her life. So, of course, she wants to, she thinks what she needs to do is to help the people of die. She wants to be the person that she's always thought she should be, even if she's hurting her friends in the process, which she doesn't realize is as important till the end, where she actually sacrifices her own abilities to save her friend, which I thought was a great moment of growth for her and of course ash who's just already gone through this once and i love the point we get to at the end of the book where we find out that ash hesitated 
at the very the very first time they were here going back because there was obviously something that he wanted to explore that just wasn't going to happen and getting to see his journey through the story is phenomenal i it was um a very relatable one to me get to that in just a second but it's there's a great balance of tones it does here because everything is heavy everything is real and that shows you the weight of the traumas that these characters carry and it it weighs on you it's it's not an easy book to read you have to take your time with it it will it will hit you it's a book that made me tear up and cry at several points just because of how real it got but it's a book that still has moments of levity in it it's a book that still has a very hopeful and optimistic message and i think that's what makes the whole thing worth it and what's going to keep it a book that I come back to again, eventually time and time again. I think this book has the makings of an evergreen classic Mm -hmm. where I remember reading this issue to issue. I was always excited for the new issue of die. I was always like, Oh sweet new die. This is great. But it wasn't until this read through reading it all as one unit that I could really see the clear beginning, middle, and end that is this story. This perfect 20-issue tome from Hans and Gillen is something that I feel like will stand up to the test of time. I think the two of them and their collaborators, Clayton Cowles and, oh, there's someone that did design, uh, Ryan Hughes and Chrissy Williams, all this whole group of people came together and they made something special and they made something that wasn't meant to go on forever. That didn't have fluff. And it's something I'm going to come back to over the years in the same way that I returned to Tolkien in the same way that I returned to, I mean, I'm currently rewatching game of Thrones for like the seventh time. Like there's something about (laughs) fantasy that draws you in. And I think Something about those can, fucking dragons, man. Just brings him back. <laughs> I I I love in die when they were theme like here. Yeah. I like the in die when they were like, dragons are cool. Like there's just something about them that just draws, you know, it's like absolutely there is. Mm-hmm. Alexis, 100%. remember my book? Remember my book, Dragonology? Oh, of course I remember your Dragonology book. You had Dragonology too? <laughs> I had all the ologies. Not surprised. Loved all of them. Dragonology was my favorite, though. Egyptology was fun. Mythology, Greek mythology was fun. Monsterology was probably my second favorite. Dragonology and monsterology, I would purchase and put on my shelf right now. Those books had such a huge part of my life. Why we keep joking about it, but it's really, really true. I'm just the Earth Eleven version of you. It's true, and that terrifies me every day. (laughs) That means that Owen is the earth two version of you as well because <laughs> owen is the earth two version of me that was established over on the geek explained podcast oh my gosh oh, we have a multiverse explained. the we multiverse do. of madness <laughs> shut up okay so some big things i want to make sure we talk about in this episode before we get to any questions i want to talk about literary illusions and i want both of you to have an opportunity to talk about why your favorite character is important to you because you both alluded to feeling very seen by this book. What order do we want to do that in? Let's, let's do, I, I think literary illusions first and save the, um, 
the fun connection stuff for the la- for the end. Okay. Yeah. And then we'll get into listeners' questions. Are there any other things you two want to make sure we hit before nope, that we? That sounds solid to me. No, I feel like we'll get there with our little personal blurbs about our characters. So perfect. Um, so, Anne, do you want? Or I guess should we go in order of appearance of the people? I guess that kind of stacks. Let it rip. So yeah. the... Let it rip. All right. So, in the world of die. We have 20 individual areas representing the 20 sides of the dice. Each of these 20 areas is a different fantasy world. And so our story takes place over four of those fantasy worlds, right? We only got to four? We got four out of the 20. What the hell was the other 16 doing? I guess. Paying bitches, apparently. There's a whole world war going on and they're just not helping. We'll they're like, you're on your own. <laughs> I think they were waiting for the sinking of the Lusitania. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll see them in the sequel, Die 2, Die Harder. Die Hard. <laughs> um, so the first area that our group comes into, um, and therefore the first author we encounter and ultimately the last author we encounter is J.R.R. Tolkien. And so I alluded to this earlier. Um, I'm gonna try not to get emotional. It feels very weird to like get emotional about Mm -hmm. something as silly as like a book author, but like J.R.R. Tolkien is the hand behind the most important story to me. Mm-hmm. Um, from a very young age, I was introduced to the Lord of the Rings by my dad. Um, my dad and I, we don't have a ton in common, but like the one thing we have always had in common is fantasy and specifically J.R.R. Tolkien. I vividly remember being probably no older than four years old. And my dad saying like, I think it's, I think you're ready to, to see the Hobbit. And uh, not the Hobbit. He said the Lord of the Rings. There was the animated Lord of the Rings that covered like up to Helm's Deep, basically. And I was like, oh, dad, is anything scary in it? And he was like, well, no. He's like, well, I guess there's this little guy named Gollum that he's like, but he's just kind of this little frog man. And so I pictured the Looney Tunes frog in the in the tuxedo and the hat that's like and does a little dance. And I was like, oh, dad, that's not going to be scary. And then Gollum scared the living pants off of me. But our whole, our, whole family, our whole family has PTSD from yeah. that stupid character. He's like, hello, my honey. Hello, my precious. It's my ragtime gal. And... As scared as I was of Gollum, I was immediately enamored with this world. Um, In very short order, after that, my dad showed me the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings movies that were out at this point. I remember being very upset that I was not allowed to come to the Return of the King in theaters. (laughs) I remember feeling like I was grown up enough and he was like, I'm not taking however old I was at the time. I think I was seven. He's like, I'm not taking the seven-year-old to... Return of the King. And, but as soon as it came on DVD, I watched it. And I've watched these movies dozens of times with my dad. I then went on, I've probably read The Hobbit 40, 50 times. I've read The Lord of the Rings over and over again. I just completed a Lord of the Rings reread this last year. And 
it's such a special story to me. It's, I think it's the first fantasy story I ever read that I felt like shaped my morality. I feel like reading stories about the hobbits, reading stories about what it means to be good that early in life, like wrapped up in all this fantasy was something that informed me forever. Like I, I want to be just like Sam Gamgee when I grow up. And I don't think that doesn't exist without J.R.R. Tolkien. I love dragons. I love fantasy. I love the kind of escapism that these worlds give. And without J.R.R. Tolkien creating adult fantasy with his novels, we don't have die. We don't have everything else we named we do not have if J.R.R. Tolkien doesn't create adult fantasy. And that's bananas. And it wasn't something I realized until I was in Oxford a few years ago. And I went to the J.R.R. Tolkien Museum that they have in the library of Oxford. And I got to see just the way this man's mind worked, where he created whole histories, whole languages and as someone who I've spent some time learning languages and it's always funny, fantasy languages love to create a vocabulary, but it always still has English grammar rules. Not Tolkien. He had conjugation charts. He had different ways that you structure sentences. He created full languages, full 3000 years worth of history before his story even started. And my favorite detail was most of Lord of the Rings was written on the back of people's graded essays as he was still a professor at night. And so they had reached out to these people and they had collected in this museum. You would see like B minus. And then like the last third of their page was just another excerpt from Lord of the Rings. And he was just writing it as he worked, as he lived. And the evolution of Lord of the Rings from a bedtime story he told his children into as the hobbit the hobbit was a bedtime story that was then published as a book for children that was then given a sequel that was meant for adults in lord of the rings you see the foundations of everything else that's to come and so in die our characters they go and they meet the inspiration that J.R.R. tolkien had as someone who served in world war one served in the trenches served in mordor J.R.R. Tolkien very much knew what it was to leave the green pastures where he felt like good people knew how to be good. I've been in Oxford and I've seen how lovely it is. And I was like, oh, this is the Shire. You're right. Like you left these little green forests and you went down to one of the most ugly scenes that humanity's ever experienced. I could see the drag. Like you can, something died us so well as it, it shows you like, oh, the dragons are the flamethrowers he saw. Mordor is the trenches. These hobbits are his friends, the good people he met, that he had to watch die around him because of what he viewed as very clearly evil as he was trying to protect what was good. And so this story, when you get to meet the little hobbits, you get to meet Frodo and Sam dying in the trenches, dressed as little soldiers. When you get to see Tolkien walk out for the first time, and I... I feel silly saying this, but when, when the Eagles come to save the characters of die and Tolkien just says like, Oh, it was always one of my favorites. 
like I couldn't help but cry just thinking about like how much I love this man and I love these stories. And so I, I thought it was brilliant to, to frame the story with Tolkien, with someone who loves fantasy, who loves fantasy that has a meaning because as I, as I've read these stories, they started out as fun adventures that I didn't think much about, but even just this most recent read through of the Lord of the Rings, I couldn't help but just continue to see the themes that Tolkien was trying to say. So like this story exists to teach me about our world and to teach me what kind of person to be in our world. And I think fantasy is really, really good at that because it puts the story just far enough away that you don't have any defenses up when it decides to start telling you what you need to do to be a good person. Um, And so it was really fun for me as well at the end of this story as the bookend when Tolkien comes back as the key influence of the story where they go into the depths of Moria, they go and the triumphant moment for Ash mirrors Gandalf as he fights the Balrog and transcends to become Gandalf the White. Like those illusions are such powerful images for me because they immediately say like, this is what this scene means. Like, Oh, this is a very triumphant scene. Oh, this is, a very tense and going to end sad scene. And so the way that Gillen and Hans play with that imagery, those illusions to teach me about the story was really impactful for me. And it was able to reframe my favorite stories ever told in a new fresh way. I went kind of long with that. Thank you for indulging me with my Tolkien. I'm just going to cry over here. <laughs> yeah. No, God. no, no. That, that was perfect. <laughs> Now I feel okay. Now I feel like I have to go read The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and now we have to refilm this episode after I understand everything I didn't understand of this whole comic run. Apparently, it was a lot. There was there's a lot of Tolkien. We have a question about that later in the show, so we'll talk about what my favorite Tolkien moment was. I I purposely left it out in my description, so I can talk about it later for the question. (laughs) I'm just, I'm still stuck on the fact that they have old papers in there with the excerpts on them. Could you imagine getting an F on a report and it's now in a museum for all of history for people to look at? Can you imagine a professor, like, giving you a little snippet of his book each time you do an assignment, though? Like, how rad would that be? Be like, what do I do this time? Oh, I got an F, but who cares? As long as the book's good. As long as the book's good. Fifty Shades of Grey, Chapter Seventy Five. Yeah, that'd be my shit. Do you want to know? Do you want to know my very favorite thing that J.R.R. Tolkien did? Hmm. I for Alexis and I's mom, who loves Santa Claus more than anything in the world. While I was in Oxford, I bought her a copy of J.R.R. Tolkien's Letters from Father Christmas because every year, as Father Christmas or Santa Claus. J.R.R. Tolkien would write letters back to the kids. It's so fucking And so cute. they would send a letter, and he would give them a yearly update of what Santa was up to. And, like, a couple years in, he got a polar bear sidekick that had a name. And, like, there were recurring characters and motifs. And, like, there's this whole collection of Tolkien's letters back to his children from Santa that even into a, like, very late teen years, well past a belief in Father Christmas, the Tolkien's always got letters back. Father Christmas. That's so fucking cute. Oh my gosh. And I I just feel like there's a love in Tolkien's stories that you can feel. Like when you read The Hobbit, you can tell it's a dad that's trying to teach his kids something sweet. 
but also like keep them entertained, keep them fun. Like the Lord of the Rings is so fun because at the end of the day, it's, it is one of the most fun stories ever told, but like there is so much to it. It's something I can read over and over and over again. That's All right, fine. You convinced me to read it. Damn it. <laughs> I will Best. say you got to embrace Tom Bombadil. You have to accept there's a hundred pages in there of this random, like, the Lord of the Rings takes a minute before it decides to be the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> so basically, Frodo, they're like, Frodo, the ring, it's so important. It's the end of all humanity if this goes wrong. And Frodo's like, damn, I'm going to smoke a bunch of weed on my porch and take like <laughs> 17 years to sell my house. But once that's done, for sure, I'll go. <laughs> and then he goes. And the first thing they do is they hit this forest. And this guy comes out and he's like, Dinkle, 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 dingle. I am Tom Bombadil. <laughs> okay. And, they, and the hobbits are just like, wow, look at us. We're dancing with Tom Bombadil. <laughs> and you're a little bit like, what is happening? What is going on? And Tom Bombadil's like, I'm the spirit of the forest. I'm Tom Bombadil. <laughs> and then the hobbits are like, ah. Uh, this is what we're doing it for. And then the Lord of the Rings starts. And that's like 150 pages of. God. Okay. Oh my okay. gosh. I you do. At this point, this many read throughs, I love Tom Bombadil. I get to him and I was like, I know what's to come. It's great. Let's enjoy this sing songy weirdo from the woods. You're like, I'll allow him. it. Continue. Exactly. He's the Jar Jar Binks. Oh, Lord. Except he rules. Excuse you, Jar Jar's perfect. Jar Jar doesn't? What also rules about Hello? Tolkien is he skips the battles. It's the funniest thing in the world. He Tolkien has no interest in war at all. He'll be like, and then they all pulled their swords and, I don't know, some shit happened for sure. Anyway, this is what they all felt about it after. <laughs> Let's talk about your feelings. All right. All right. My, my favorite is in The Hobbit, Bilbo. They literally build to the War of the Five Armies. And then Bilbo gets knocked out in like 30 seconds and then wakes up and it's like, by the way, the war is over. And it's like, Tolkien, right. Tolkien, you king, you truly just do not give a shit about writing a war. Oh, it's very funny. Which, you know, from someone who's in a war, understandable. Yeah, like the guy doesn't want to relive. Yeah, he don't need that. Yeah, he, yeah. he went to World War One. He doesn't need to write about it. Say, speaking of World War One, would you like me to talk just a little bit now about H.G. Wells and about his role in it? It's definitely not as significant as Tolkien's was, but I still think there's a lot of really fun things about H.G. Wells and his work that plays into Die in some pretty critical ways. Absolutely. He, think, he thinks his work is really important. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I will not take H.G. Wells' slander on this show. <laughs> It was said with love. <laughs> we can save all of our slander for H.P. Lovecraft. We yeah, will. yeah. Fuck H.P. Lovecraft. This is a okay. H.P. Lovecraft hate show. All right, all right. We'll we'll roll with that. Um. <laughs> so H.G. Wells. Um. I learned a lot about him doing research for the story. H.G. Wells was an interesting character in that he is, in a lot of the ways that J.R. Tolkien is the um, forefather of, like, adult fantasy. H.G. Wells is very, very much the forefather of, um, the, the the maker of science fiction as we know it. We had Jules Verne before him, who was very much pre-science fiction, but H.G. Wells 
dove straight into it. His first novel was The Time Machine, which plays a pretty significant role in this movie. He was a scientist by nature. He worked very, very hard to get the education that he had. And he was very much a person who took his scientific knowledge, um, theories of evolution, and different um, aspects of science like that, and implemented those into his work. Um, the Time Machine is one of my favorites. I love the fact that it's a book that takes a look not just at like the future of humanity and follows up like what would evolution look like for people 40,000 years down the road. And we get this fun little bit where there's a group of humans living above ground and the subterranean warlocks who just want to eat them. Um, the Time Machine is some crazy stuff. And it's crazy. They often, a lot of people kind of referred to H.G. Wells as a prophet because he was so smart that he could predict so many things that were going to happen. And he wrote stories, so many stories trying to tell people, please, God, no, don't let this happen. Like, um, they talk about it specifically in Die. The book they reference there is called Little Wars. It was a basically a war game that he made to show people like, this is how bad war is going to get if the Great War happens. He's like, we're, this is going to be the war that ends all wars. Let's not do it. And yet the war still happens anyway. And that's one of the things that the H.G. Wells in the book gets really upset about because this is a version from before the end of his life. But he would continue trying to stop shit as it was happening. There was a point where he was very, very much aware of the rise of Hitler and fascism in Germany. He was very much anti-nationalist. He was actually a socialist and he was pretty, he's actually a pretty cool guy. He was pretty um, pro-woman and he was very sex positive, which was very, very um, not okay back then. He, he had this crazy idea that one day sex is going to be something that men and women both enjoy and want to do. Crazy. It's um un absolutely unheard of. And I'm really looking forward to that day. <laughs> I hope to see it in my lifetime. We're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, and he, it's funny because he wrote so many papers hoping that stuff like um, World War II wouldn't happen. And he actually predicted stuff like the use of nuclear weapons and atomic warfare very early. I believe as early as 1913. And it's almost like one of those you often meet your destiny on the road you take to avoid it. Because some people have cited the fact his early works with um, talking about fictional weapons of mass destruction as real life influences on the real weapons of mass destruction. Which is kind of terrifying to think about. He actually reached a part, part in his life where the older and older he got, the more and more depressed he became because he realized that he was predicting all this stuff in his works and people just were not listening to him. When he found out about like the concentration camps at the end of the, um, at the end of world war two, he was just devastated at like the atrocities we could inflict on each other. And he was very much of the opinion, like, we are going to doom each other in the end. He used to, he went from being a futurist with like an optimistic um, viewpoint to very much being like a futurist with a more nihilistic viewpoint, just as he saw all these things he hoped wouldn't happen come to light. And I think that really goes into the role he plays in this book where he shows up to confront Ash and tries to get her to stop what she's doing and trying to save Di only to realize that everything he was trying to stop has already started and by the time he goes to try and confront it, it's too late. And by the time he takes off in his time machine in the story, and by the time we see him again, he's already done. He's already be beaten. And he's, once again, too late to stop anything. 
And I thought that was such a bittersweet revolution revelation that comes very much on par with his entire life's work. He was such a, a fascinating character who just was heartbroken by the fact that his word didn't seem to get through and he didn't get to stop any of the things he wanted to and completely understandable. If I dedicated my whole life to trying to make sure people didn't do stupid shit and they went and did that stupid shit anyway, I would probably be pretty bummed. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, so you said your favorite H.G. Wells is the time machine. It's either. I love the time machine very, very much. Um, I also like The Invisible Man and War of the Worlds is a classic. That was also another fun thing that he predicted in War of the Worlds. He very specifically talks about the panic that would have happened if um, aliens were to invade. And then after the Orson Welles um, radio broadcast where they broadcasted an, a radio play of War of the Worlds like it was an actual real thing that was happening and America just freaked the fuck out. He, H.G. Wells actually thought it was the funniest thing because he's like called it <laughs> i knew that's exactly what they do and he's just like it's the dumbest thing i've ever heard of but i called it that's super funny um yeah so tolkien gives us the the framework of fantasy worlds hg wells gives us the sort of you may reap exactly what you sow mm -hmm. even if you don't expect it and the mechanics for, and sort of the brains behind RPG games with mm -hmm. his book, Little Wars. Um, next up on the list of creators that influence die and exist and die are the Brontes. Mm -hmm. um, the Bronte sisters were some of the only women admitted to the certified genius club of the 19th century. It was a bunch of men, and then these little women were dubbed geniuses at their time. And so the Brontes, specifically three sisters and the one brother, are cited as some of the very first people to have ver vocal role-playing games with their shared narrative and story titled Glass Town. Um, for anyone that's curious, if so I read... I learned about this from Die, and then I wanted to go read more. There is an excellent graphic novel that I read called uh, "Pending." Pending. It's called "Glass Town: The Imaginary World of the Brontes" by Isabel Greenberg. Really fun, quirky art style, and just from the point of view from the of the Brontes, retelling in a little bit more detail the bullet points that Kieran Gillen gives us here. But the Brontes basically, after the death of their two oldest sisters, decide to escape into a fictional world where they create a number of characters that they get to interact with, they get to play as, and they, as siblings, had this shared world that they just furiously wrote. There were thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of little notes, little poems, little interactions. It was a pen and paper game that these people would play together throughout much of their life. There would be breaks where some of them would have to go off to school, but when they returned, they would go back to Glastown. 
And something that I found really interesting about the creation of Glasstown was the idea of literary illusion within Glasstown. And so reading the snippets of Glasstown that still exist, I it became very clear the stories that influenced them, like Gulliver's Travels, like the Old Testament, mm -hmm. like the works of Jules Verne. You can see the little bits of influence in their Glasstown, but then you can also see the human truths that have fascinated people forever. There are stories of war, conquest, suppressed peoples. There are some pretty sh biting criticism of colonialism from a bunch of British children in the early 19th century. I was like, these literal children are like, damn, we should give these lands back to the indigenous people. And I was like, you are 200 years ahead of your time. Woke. As the kids say. Hell yeah. Bunch of, bunch of woke Brontes. Um, they also wrote some of the most compelling like love triangles. I caught myself getting caught up in the love triangles of Glasstown. As I was like, ugh, queen, you deserve so much better. And I was like, an 11-year-old wrote this, and I am in it. And so it's really fun to see human interaction and literary illusion baked into the very first role-playing game, essentially. The Brontes very much played an influence on the creation of games like Dungeons & Dragons, or even just the popularization of fantasy in a very similar way to what Tolkien would do years and years, decades later. Um, I think it's... They very clearly influenced... Kieran Gillen, in so much that he puts Glass Town, Glass Town, wow, Glass Town, and Zamorana, the vampire prince guy, he's from there too. He takes literal places and characters from the Brontes and places them into die. And I think as well, the instinct of the Brontes to take their favorite stories from everywhere else and cram them all together is very present in die from Kieran Gillen as well. So again, um, what exists, what's left of Glasstown is by no means all that was made, but we are aware of the creation of this by the Brontes and what still does exist is pretty compelling and very funly retold in the graphic novel that I cited. So that is the Brontes and their influence on Die. Uh, and finally, getting into this last one, who I don't want to spend too much time on, because as much as I adore his works and as much as of an influence as they've had on like me personally, I think H.P. Lovecraft is kind of a shit person. <laughs> Pretty established shitbag, for sure. Pretty established shithead. Definitely, cool. like, in terms of character traits, definitely, like, F-tier, F-tier human being. Trash. Trash-tier. This is a man who's fictional biggest fear was existentialism and cosmic horror and just the overbearing weight of the fact that the universe might mean nothing and there might be no point to anything and that gods might actually be pretty vengeful beings that don't care about you. But in real life, his biggest fear was people who have a different skin color than him and uh. foreigners. So... I think just on the basis... Of that, I think he's a 
good person to take us into that second act turn that we get the the depths of Moria as we will as we get deeper and deeper into the the end game of the story. It's where our heroes are at the lowest point. It's where we find out some of the darker ramifications of die and the origins of the fallen. And I think having this um, this writer, this creator, who made an entire life of delving into utterly hopeless stories of just pure pure terror was the perfect gateway there. You couldn't do this with anyone else. Because as fanciful as H.G. Wells and Tolkien and the Brontes could get, this is an author who understood pure nihilism. And going into the very end of your story, that's exactly what you want going into the climax. You want these characters to feel like there's no way out, and you need to get into some pretty weird shit. And I think that Lovecraft is perfect for that. I agree. I I love the works of H.P. Mm-hmm. Lovecraft. Um, Lovecraftian horror is one of my favorite things. Yeah, Chef's um, Kiss. I will say... Everything bad you've heard about Lovecraft exists. And mm-hmm. um, what is great about existing in the year 2022, though, is that there are a lot of people that also love Lovecraft mm-hmm. that don't share those opinions. And so take the great ideas that Lovecraft had, leave all the garbage behind, and write new things. For instance, this is a comic book podcast. I know we've been talking about novels. We've lost some of you. But <laughs> too many words. They're very good. Um, Victor Lavelle, who is writing the excellent Sabretooth right now, has an excellent Lovecraftian horror book called The Ballad of Black Tom, recommended to me by Celise and Evan both, friends of the pod. Mm-hmm. And I, from what I've read so far, recommend it as well. It has a very critical look at the racist tendencies of Lovecraft stories, it inverts them, and it still has all of that fun, good Lovecraft horror that you're looking for. I love that. Yeah. Also, Anne is pretty good at Lovecraft horror, everyone. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. If anyone wants to read some stuff, hit me up, and if I can trust you with my dead name, I will will shoot you some links. If not, she's going to ignore you. <laughs> if not, I'm going to ignore you. Maybe send or you back a little, delete. like, devil face. I'm going to send you back Dallas just saying no. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's good. Um, Some unsung... So those are the four authors that are specifically in the story. And a little bit of their history. Why we think they're important to the story. Um, some unsung heroes. Like we said at the top. C.S. Lewis and the... We... This book is often pitched as Jumanji meets D&D, and I think that's fair. But it's very much like Alexa said. It's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, where they get pulled in. And there's a great portion at the end of the book where they talk about the wardrobe being a closet and mm-hmm. D&D being mm-hmm. a place where you have to learn to come out of the closet or just whatever your personal closet of insecurity is, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was great. I think there's a decent amount of Jules Verne in here, and I really loved the submarine that they pulled out <laughs> as just like yeah. the, the smallest allusion to one of my other biggest favorite authors that shaped me as a child, Jules Verne. Um, if you haven't read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, shit slaps. It is better than you expect. Um, mm-hmm. And then finally, I think 
the middle parts with Izzy and Ash in Angria, as much as it is totally influenced by the Brontes, I think there's also a healthy dash of George R.R. R. Martin in there mm-hmm. and the politics of Game of Thrones. And so those are three of the authors that I love that I also feel like were present here. And I think just before I turn the time over, I want Alexis to talk for like 10 straight minutes because she just endured us being nerds. But <laughs> I I do want to say all of the best comic writers are very well versed in all other kinds of media. Mm-hmm. Chris Claremont's X-Men is chalked full of allusions to films, to operas, to plays, to movies. He was into everything. Grant Morrison has cited more random paintings in their work and songs from punk bands you don't even know the names of than most people have written issues of comic books. Um, I think my favorite burn I have ever heard was Grant Morrison, after visiting Rob Liefeld's home, made the comment, I didn't see a single thing that wasn't related to a comic book in there. And it kind of looked like a house owned by someone named Skippy. (laughs) And so so I would say if you don't want to be like Rob Liefeld, I would encourage you to investigate the works of, from other art forms. Whatever it is that speaks to you, Um, Just this weekend, two of my favorite things that I did with Anne was going and seeing the wonderful movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, and which I I assure you, having not even seen Doctor Strange yet, is the best multiverse movie that came out this year. It's incredible. Doctor Strange does not have Rakakuni. It does not have Rakakuni, and it won't have Kung Fu. But And then going to see... The Broadway play Chicago was incredible. And I think I walked away from both of those things with ideas of how I wanted to bring them to the comic book medium that I love so much. Mm -hmm. So if you love comics, I assure you there are some beautiful things in the wings that can make you love comics more. In the same way, Kieran Gillen loves comics more because he loves all of these other things. Very well said. Thank you. So, Lex, please talk to us about Angela and why you love her and why you love Die, how you feel like it spoke to you. Like, what what took this from a good comic to a great and important to you comic book? All right. So, I I feel like I definitely want to focus specifically on, I guess, like my journey with Angela. Because even like from the very, very beginning, I felt like, oh, okay, yeah. You're the younger sister who just wants to be around your older brother. You like your older brother's friends. Like, it's just a very younger sibling trope to begin with. And I feel like after they come back, after that two-year vanishing moment, I kind of feel like we get a little snippet of how she was afterwards. And I felt very seen by that as well because she she's kind of a wreck. Like, she's trying to figure out how to be a young adult. She's trying to manage her grief and her trauma with trying to figure out how to be a normal functioning human being, especially something that she feels like she can't talk about. And like, I don't want to like say that I have anywhere near the amount of 
grief or trauma that would come from an event like that. But just having a mixture of dealing with your own mental health and also trying to start a life for yourself, become a young adult, like sort everything out and try to cope with everything that's kind of going on all at once. It's a very hard thing to do. And when you add trauma and um, negative things into that, it makes it that much harder. And so I felt very seen by her as someone who's trying to build my little, my little building block house of my life right now. And um, I also couldn't help but feel like later on, she really, um, in the world of Dai, she's put into a hard spot. We see um, the fallen recreation of her own child, which is extremely traumatic for her. And she, she she dealt with a lot of grief and loss from the world of Dai. And even we see, um, with her poor, like, little robo-dog, like, just all of her, all of these things stacking up against her and seeing her overcome and also kind of, I feel like she kind of was carrying a lot, um, like, through, um, the use of Molly, her daughter, being a fallen zombie, Um, I feel like she kind of used that as an outlet of carrying everybody else through the story. Like, I have to keep it together. Like, we've got to get everybody to the end. Like, this and that. And we kind of see how in the last issue it all starts to crumble down again. And we get this really vulnerable part from her where they they have to, in order to keep going, um, they have to kill her daughter, Molly. Because she, the Fallen are the ones that produce her little gold nuggets that she needs to get her fixed, to use her powers. So it's like, I don't know. I just, I can't really explain it fully, but I just felt very seen and I really liked Angela a lot. I feel like she had a lot more depth than I feel like a lot of people realize. Because the other characters are also so much. And I felt like she kind of was the background of the foundation of everybody. She was trying to push everybody up. I like that. Do you feel like it was true to your experience as like a younger sibling that while you have just as compelling of a narrative going on, like sometimes it doesn't feel like the story is as much about you. Yeah. And I would also say, especially as like a younger female sibling, and I don't want that to come off as like weird or anything, but, um, it's an interesting dynamic for sure. Um, it's just different. Cause I mean, I kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I feel like I was a major role in my younger siblings lives just because it was kind of expected of me. And that's what I just did. Like I would take them to and from their after school activities. I remember I would help my little brother do his homework. Like I, there was oftentimes like throughout the week that I would make dinner just because everybody was running around and it kind of became part of my role as an older sister, I guess. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, are there ways that you feel like you were able to relate to Angela that you haven't been able to relate to other characters we've met across the podcast? We've read a lot of great books so far. Do you feel like there's something that may die better than other things we've read? 
know. I mean, I would. I don't want to say not necessarily, but um, I feel like she kind of immediately jumped out and like slapped me in the face to grab my attention. I feel like some other characters that we've found are more of like a slow burn. But when she's immediately introduced, like I've said in the first like two pages, that's like, oh, yeah, this is my little sister that hangs out with us all the time. And I'm like, oh, OK, there's a younger sister that wants to hang out. That's valid. I see. I feel seen by that. Thinking my older brother's friends are all cool until they tell me that I have his face and then I never want to talk to them ever again. <laughs> Bitches. <laughs> I'm still traumatized by that. <laughs> that. That's my PTSD trauma right there. Everyone tell me I have Dallas's freaking face. And my new face. brown hair doesn't help. <laughs> it's a good face. Yeah. Face so, right. face so nice. God it's did it all right. At least I have all my teeth. <laughs> that is that is very real. <laughs> Shout out to Queen. You both rock it. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. Anne's just sitting here looking at two identicals. Just <laughs> jibber-jabbering away. Twins, oh, four, four years apart. You said it, Lexi. Oh, I'm sorry. What? I just said twins, four years apart. That's great. <laughs> Wonderful. I love doing a podcast with two tailors. This is the best. That's great. Let's just bring the other two on. It'll get even more entertaining. <laughs> yes, have to meet the other siblings. Have to oh, do it. it. AJ is a hellion. I will tell you that now. <laughs> I like him. He's wild. If we ever talk about Demon Slayer, he will come on for sure. He likes Demon Slayer a lot. If we ever do any anime, Tiffany will. Yeah. She does love anime, and it freaks my mother out. That's a topic for another day. Topic for another day. (laughs) All right, Miss Anne, do you want to bring us home talking about Ash before we do any listener questions? So, Ash, reading this for the first time, was a curious character for me because I think when did I start reading this? 2018? When I read this book for the first time, I don't think I was out yet. Because this if this started in 2018, the first volume would have come out, you know, early like 2019. And I'm pretty sure 2019 is when I had like my big revelation and stuff started happening. So it's yeah, it's interesting to go through this time completely with that lens because Ash's journey is very much a journey of a queer person who has kind of just put everything they are deep in a box inside themselves, locked it away, threw away the key, buried it as deep as they possibly could, and just decided it is going to rot away at me, but I'm going to leave it there until the end of time because it's better than acknowledging that it's there. And it's an experience that I relate to very, very personally. It's, and I think a lot of queer people who don't necessarily know and embrace the fact that they're queer young will relate to. Because Ash is very much a person that if you ask them before they went into the game the second time, if they were queer, they they would have told you no. It's, they were perfectly fine passing as just a regular cishet um, guy in a straight relationship and that's where it starts and stops. But under the surface, there's so much more going on. And I remember very, very vividly the moment when it clicked in volume four, 
when Ash is talking about the fact that on the playground that they would go around and kiss random boys. And the moment the teacher told them to stop and all of that just kind of got shunted inside. Because even though the teachers didn't say why he needed to stop, he knew it was because he was kissing boys. And that was the implied, the, the implied part of it. And I very much had a similar experience like that when very, very young, I was, I could feel like my queerness. I could feel the fact that I wanted to explore my gender identity a little bit. I was, um, mine was very, very simple. I loved movies even as a kid. I loved very, very much watching um, princess movies. And I loved Cinderella. I loved Snow White. And I very, very much loved um, Ariel and the Little Mermaid. That was my favorite movie when I was growing up. And I remember being so, so excited to watch The Little Mermaid 2 because I was very excited to meet Ariel's daughter. I thought I was going to love her very, very much. And I remember, and this isn't shade at anyone because I think it was my dad who told me on the way to pick the movie up that typically little boys weren't that excited to watch The Little Mermaid. And I think that was something that stuck with me forever, because every time I thought about engaging in something even remotely feminine after that, that line would come back to me and it would tell me, like, this isn't okay. You need to you need to be doing the stuff that's good for your gender. And all those feelings just kind of got pushed aside. They don't disappear. That's the, that's the thing. And I think Ash is a good representation of that, because we see moments where... Ash is thinking back to their life outside the game versus what they did inside the game. And inside the game is very much a version of Ash who isn't inhibited by any rules or any social norms. Ash in the game was Ash as Ash wanted to live. Ash kissed boys. Ash had sex with boys. Ash lived as her. She was a powerful woman and she embraced that. And it takes me back to moments when I would play my own games and... Just, if there's a character customization option, I would always make the gender of the characters I was playing female, because reasons. And that just, I would just justify it however I could. It's either like, oh, I just I just think it's it's sexier to play as a woman, just because I get to look at a woman the whole time, not because I'm pretending to be one. And it's something that you can keep pushing down for as long as you want, but it was a moment that I had to confront and say okay, I've had these feelings for forever. I need to talk about them. I need to get them out there. I need to figure out what this means for me. And Ash's journey to reach that point, and I don't think Ash ever, like, gives themselves a label. I know in the final issue, when they're talking about this in, like, issue 19, they throw around the fact that Ash might be gender fluid, which feels about right, but there's still, you know, as a trans woman, there's a lot in there that spoke to me. I remember... um Ash, the moment Ash, um, we find out about her daughter, eh, not her daughter, her son, and just the feelings that when she was out of the world and how much she wanted a child and stuff like that, that was also very personal to me because that's, that's also something I struggle with, just very, very personal here. But the fact that I'm not going to be able to have like my own kids, that's very, very hard to think about. And I completely understand the pain that Ash feels there. And that was a moment that hit so hard that the first time I was reading through this, I actually had to set the book down and just kind of like walk away for a little bit because it hit so hard. And I think anyone who's been through that where they've 
just kind of had to put aside who they were for so long is going to relate to Ash a lot for that exact reason. And it's so cathartic to see Ash face who they are in that, that ball rug moment on the bridge and to defeat it by embracing it and becoming one with it and deciding when they get out of the game that they need to talk about it and that they're going to be who they want. They're going to be a parent. They're going to work things out with their partner. And I think whatever happens to Ash in the end, whatever they decide for themselves and I'm just for themselves. And I'm just kind of using they, them because I'm not sure how Ash identifies after the game ends. I think it's, it's really uplifting and inspiring and probably one of the most personal connections I've had to any character we've read in any of these stories. So thank you for enduring my long spiel. Thank you for sharing. I love you both so much. I like this book. Yeah, this is a good one. It's a good book. Everybody should read it. And then buy um, it. Because if you don't click with Angela or Ash, you will definitely click with, you know, Matt. You'll click with Matt. Or I hope you don't click with Chuck. But if you click with Chuck, good for you. If you click with Chuck, we might need to hang out. But... <laughs> He was a fun, awful guy. I liked him. He created He's, a lot of fun scenarios. I like that he was trashed to the end mm-hmm. as well, though. Here's my hot take. Too many dumpster fires are redeemed in fiction. <laughs> I like... Just let him suck. I <laughs> like burn. He went out how he came in. He came in a douche. He left a douche. I liked it. He did douche. help save the dog, though. He did. He helped save the whole day. At the end. Sacrificing himself to Saul, that was pretty cool. Yeah. And there were some moments in there where it's like he does the quote unquote like the right thing, like he makes the hard decisions, but even though it's still at like Summit's expense. Like when he makes um Angela look over the edge, he's like, Oh look, Ash is still alive. Look, look, yeah. look. And then he turns around and stabs her daughter. He's like, I was hoping I could do that without you seeing. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you did something you nice tried. by making her look away. You tried, but it's still kind of a dick move to stab it's your best friend's still daughter. Kind of a shit. Truly. Um, my final note before we get into listener questions. We're going to try and do wrap this up in 10 minutes, everybody. We can do it. Deal. I believe in Deal. us. We got it. I do want to say really quickly, we've talked a lot about story beats, sort of the writing of this. Stephanie Hans really brought a lot to this oh, yeah. book. And I think one of the big things I noticed in this second read through was Stephanie's use of the colors pink, blue, and white in specifically the order of the trans pride flag for like seven issues before we had the big heavy hitter about Ash's gender fluidity that very much became not only the color signature of Ash, but much of the book. And I thought that was really cool. The volume four was just bathed in those colors because it was a very subtle way to start shifting your mind towards that topic. And I think that was the first time I'd ever seen something quite like that in a story. Mm-hmm. And the first time I noticed it, I was like, oh, that's interesting foreshadowing. And then I was like, oh, this whole volume is just going to start being like these colors in this or like just a big trans flag behind like every big moment in the series. It was it was really cool and interesting to mm-hmm. see the artwork do that heavy lifting. And yeah. I think this book resonated with us on a a lot from the writing, but I absolutely wanted to shine a light on Stephanie Ong's one last time before we move to questions. 
Yeah. And thank you for that. That's such a good observation that completely missed me. I'm so glad that you got that. It's a good one. Um, was everyone's notes able to update or do I need to read these? Okay. So let's do every other. I'll start. Um, Colleen writes in and says, each face of Die is a different fantasy region, often inspired by a real world author. Which fantasy region would be would be the most tempting to you to want to stay in the game for good? Oh, oh. that's such a good one. <laughs> Can we make one I, up? Oh, absolutely! Like we didn't see we sixteen didn't... of the sides. There exactly. could be a Barbie world in there somewhere. <laughs> There's definitely a, t- a side that was the Dark Tower. I'm that not saying in that one, though. <laughs> I'm not saying there either, but that book was insane. In a good way. I cannot believe how hooked I am after that ending. You're welcome. You're the worst. <laughs> I know. I think, just because I'm such a big sci-fi nerd, I would love to live in H.G. Wells land. I think that would be amazing. Um, giant Martian tripods, time machines, invisible men cannibalistic people underground you think it sounds like hell i think it sounds like a great tuesday so let's roll i would love to live in a jewel a jules verne land mm-hmm. where there aren't like real consequences but there's like a very fun just sense of the world is big and exciting like it's not cool to be dark and dour and nihilistic yet it's just like we're going to go to the center of the earth and there's going to be some dinosaurs and it's going to rule. We're going to go to the moon. We're going to go to the bottom of the ocean. We're going to do so many cool things all the time and nothing that bad is going to happen. And Anne heard how I would like to incorporate Jules Verne into something that I'm not going to say on here for free because I actually think (laughs) I have a great idea. (laughs) It's a wonderful idea. I think so too. And so, yeah, I would live in Jules Verne land for sure. All right, go off. Good for you. <laughs> um, if I had to pick, I would probably, I don't know, the glass city really spoke to me. If I could like have a really fancy frilly dress mm-hmm. and just like run around in there, it'd be really great. Just never leave. Yeah, no, that's seems, ideal. Yeah, one of my very pretty in there. <laughs> one of my favorite details from the Bronte sisters was that two of the sisters thought that the brother and the one sister were being too dramatic in Glasstown. They're like, we don't like all the wars and the infighting. And so they went and created just like a good vibes only continent that only they were allowed to play on called uh, Gondol was its name. And so it was good vibes only. Oh, that was mentioned in there. Yeah. So that's a whole continent where nothing, nothing bad happens. Yeah. See that one. And if I could just run around barefoot with a big fancy tool dress on my hair flowing in the wind. Great. I just... I realized a Jane Austen world would be really fun. Yeah. Everyone's just being really overdramatic and little <laughs> women world, little women world, <laughs> romance, but with a D and D flavor. I could do that. Or speaking of my <laughs> romance, if there was a world that Addie and I both liked, I will leave that to the imagination. That my cold open a few weeks ago. <laughs> That's all right. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> Nope, nope, pop off. Woohoo. Sunstone changed me, everyone. And <laughs> <laughs> just victory. Victory lap. Uh, oh, it's what I do. 
True. Who's reading Anna? Who's next? Me? I'll go next. Yeah. Oh, there's... Don't mind the car that just drove past the house. But... Okay, so this next question is from our lovely friend, Evan. All right, and it says, Die, the book, not you. It says, Hi, <laughs> Comics Collective. Um, Die is one of the most impressive works of art I've ever engaged with, and while the art, color, and l- colors, and lettering are a huge factor to this, to me, it's the world building and system that... Is it Gillen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, is able to create and articulate that really glues it all together. I know two-thirds of you are D&Ders. Shout out to me, Lexi, for not being a big old nerd. And was wondering... he Evan said that, not just me. <laughs> How did I put that out there? Evan put that. Pat on the back? <laughs> no, it was said. Um... And was wondering how much you think the book works from the POV of a role player versus someone less familiar with these systems slash game types. Is there a big leap in appreciation for those who have worked in similar systems before versus those who haven't? Or is the gap smaller because of the way the those less familiar with the game with these games type game types can latch on to different aspects of the books, such as the art, characters, general fantasy of it all? Also, time permitting, how do you think this book works as a gateway for someone who wants to get into RPGs? Big fan of the show. Keep up the good work. Oh, I like that guy. I'm just going to say it. I think <gasps> he's pretty Evan. nifty. Love Evan. <laughs> I think that question is largely for Alexis, right? Yeah, Evan I was going to say, I have know. opinions for once. Yeah, <laughs> I would love take it away. Honestly, I feel like starting out, it was... It was a really good um, introduction to this world, to the types of games like that. It kind of piqued my interest. I feel like it wasn't overly complicated. Like, I feel like I got a pretty good grasp on it. Um, and it made me want to look into more things like that. Like, honestly, I would be open to playing D&D with Dallas and Anne if I that didn't make me a nerd. So, I'm not a nerd. Just them. <laughs> So excited. We welcome non-nerds and nerds alike. So as long as I can have a big flowy dress and throw rocks at giant crocodiles, I'll be fine. Of course. Just be a menace. I'm just gonna kill everybody. <laughs> Please. <laughs> just backstab the entire party. That's great. Oh, it would be so great to have you on. Um Yeah. I the second part of this question, like, does it want is it a good gateway to D&D? I gotta say, it's one of the books that convinced me to finally give it a shot, so I'll say yes on yeah. that on that account. So I would second that. I think, I mean, just RPGs in general, it made me want to explore more RPGs. Like, I want to try out The Call of Cthulhu, which mm-hmm. was, I had a, a game store that sold just strictly D&D stuff. Utah is like a nerd heaven, by the way, everyone. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew this. It is. But they literally had a strictly sells Magic the Gathering cards and role playing tabletop role playing games store. It's because nobody has in Provo. Sex here. That is that's so true. Bunch of virgins that don't drink alcohol yeah. play a lot of RPG. A games. lot of D anD. D. But I very always found it very alluring. The Call of Cthulhu up on the shelf. I wish I would have bought it honestly. Um, and I want to play that, and I really want to get into Warhammer, but. It's just so expensive, and I already have a comics habit. I cannot get in. I cannot get into Warhammer right now. Um, Put a pin in it. Never say never. 
Yeah, I won't ever say never. I would play the crap out of it. If someone else already had the stuff, I would play with them so hard. But, um, you are all right. That, you we, are that kid that plays with other people's stuff. <laughs> absolutely. All right. Let's see if we can do yes. three, three questions and uh, two questions in three minutes. Let's Bring see if we can on. do it. Rapid fire. Die question. Hello. I love die. It's one of my all time faves. I feel burdened to answer an appropriately weighty question. One, why did the chicken cross the road? Damn it, seriously. One, I must admit, I maybe didn't understand all of Die, and it's a good excuse to read it to death as I explore its various layers. What works do the collective enjoy that they're not afraid to say went over their heads? And two, there are hints of a sequel, please. And I'd love to hear what authors you guys would like to see represented through in Die, like Tolkien, Bronte, Wells, and Lovecraft were. There's a talk of a Die show. Please can Anne play Hash, Dallas play Chuck, and Alexis play Angela. Thoughts, I will naturally play one of the fallen. I hope you all enjoyed. Who was that, that from? That was from Ba-da-da-da-da-da. It's Glenn. I love how we don't even have to like put his name in there anymore. We just know it's Glenn. It's because he I am flattered, Glenn, that you put me as my favorite character. Thank you. And I love that Dallas is Chuck. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm flattered that you made Dallas Chuck. That's perfect. <laughs> If it's, I am the villain of this podcast. And the chicken crossed the road to get away from the giant steampunk dragon. Um, other authors. I would love to see Vern. Vern's the big one for me. I'd love that too. I, for whatever reason, talking with Anne this last weekend, like really rekindled my love of Jules Vern. I think it, everyone, I had the experience of going through the National History, Natural History Museum with Anne through the fish section. I've always loved that museum, but I've always skipped the fish. And then Anne talked with so much love about all the goopy boys of the world. Fish, amphibians, and reptiles. All the shit I don't care about. She talked about for like four hours and made me love them. And I was like, I want to go 20,000 leagues under the sea again. And I think Jules Verne rules. Um, Jane Austen. That's awesome. I'm glad I had that effect. Aquaman's my favorite hero for several reasons. Fishman. I think I think a lot of fun could be had with Neil Gaiman, not necessarily as a comics creator, but some of it like Stardust and (sighs) The Ocean at the End of the Lane or American Gods. Like Gaiman has written a lot of fun fantasy. It'd be fun to be brought into this. It's harder to get into those newer ones because a lot of their most famous creations are still locked under copyright. Like you can't just you could do Gaiman, but you can't throw. Sandman just anywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, it almost be fun to... I guess... No, that kind of breaks die. I was going to say, like, dive into some of, like, Arthur C. Clarke, Sir, Orn- Ooh. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, some of my other favorite classic stuff, but that doesn't really have much to do with RPG. Um, I want Kieran Gillen to show me more people. Because I had a lot of fun learning about the Brontes, and I would yeah, not have done yeah. that if it wasn't for Gillen. I agree. Surprise us. <laughs> and what works went over our heads. I'll be the first to say I still only understand about 95% of Final Crisis. I'm getting there. I've almost gotten it after like 10 read-throughs. From hell. Right over. That's a good one. Good. Clear- it cleared um, me by like 20 feet, actually. <laughs> She didn't really get it. And I know the murder. I know the real story. Which was even better that I didn't get it. I'm so glad we had Dallas with us for that show. Yeah. yeah. Dallas made me love that comic. There are full not, not swaths. Not words I would use. Hmm. But. 
All right. I like the there, pictures. <laughs> there are full swaths of Morrison's Doom Patrol that I am just existing on vibes. Like, I, I love it, but there will be pages that I'm like, I don't understand a damn thing, but I'm enjoying it. Preach. Just zooting along, having a good time. Love it. All right. And the final question. Bam, bam, bam. Hey, Comics Collective, first off, love the show. Y'all are such a fun and insightful listen each and every week. Thank you for giving me plenty of comics-focused ear candy every seven days. Second, I am so excited to hear that you're all talking about Die, probably my favorite comic series of all time. This series has a very special spot in my heart, partly because I relate to Ash's journey so much. I read this book as I was going on my own journey of accepting my true self, so this book hit me right in the feels, especially issue 19. So please forgive me for the multiple questions. Stephanie Hahn's art in this series is absolutely breathtaking and really gives a sense of epicness to the story. For you all, what is your favorite panel that you would want as a piece of art on the wall? Um, I'm going to go big for cool. a splash, all mm -hmm. of the characters. Yeah, that one's cool. That one goes. I, I want the cover to issue 19. That one's cool, too. It's a good one. Do you um, have something else? I do. There's a very specific pay, uh, picture of Ash when um, she takes over the throne. And she's like just oh, sitting in her cool. iron throne like oh a badass. That one's cool. It is very good. Uh, question two. If you were sucked into the world of Die and had to pick a class to play, what would it be and why? I feel like I'm just emulating Ash here in every way that I can, but I would love to be a dictator. I feel like that too. Just because I like to talk. <laughs> to tell people what to do. Yeah. Alexis is a dictator. I have ne I never am. met someone who has a more <laughs> slippery tongue. I love you, Alexis, but I only believe like 60% of the things you say. I am a very good liar, but I am not proud of that. But I'm, I've gotten a lot away with too much shit for my own good. And also gotten a, not gotten away with a lot of the shit that it's like 25% of the shit that I do, but it seems like a lot when you think about it. Yeah, you sometimes know. you're full of crap. I love I you, but yeah, you Got are it from a my dad. You are a dictator, a penis potato. Um, <laughs> I would be a fool because that is a very fun way to play. That's true. Like in D&D, &D, if you just run in stupid as hell, you're going to have the most fun time. And so I would play the fool. That's me. All right. Perfect. All right. And question three, specifically for me. I feel so special right now, Jamie, because everyone always is like, specifically for Alexis, specifically for Anne. I think this is the first specifically for Dallas question we've ever had it's on the show. It's your podcast. Shut up. <laughs> you I, made it. I know. And everyone forgets. I feel important right now. Let me have this. Main character time. So, for yeah. Dallas... Kieran Gillen is a massive Lord of the Rings fan and can't help himself when it comes to putting references to Tolkien's world in this book. Which one was your favorite? So, like I said, The Eagles was really great for me. Um, I really loved the whole Moria scene. I loved the Balrog scene. All great. But for me, the moment that it was the inversion hit from H.P. Lovecraft, you see the tentacles... And you're like, oh, this is love, so Lovecraft, so out there. And then the second I saw that door that they couldn't get through, I was like, that is not a Lovecraft octopus. I was like, I know what that monster is. 
And that was my favorite Tolkien moment, was the speak friend and enter reference to Fellowship of the Ring. I It hit just right, and I was like, absolutely, we're bringing it back to Tolkien here for the end. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I felt like a superstar. Um, so, thank yeah. you. That was, thanks, happy Friday, or whatever day you're reading this on, from Jamie Rose. Thank you so much, Jamie. And thank you, everyone that wrote in. I had a lot of fun with this episode. I did too. It was a good one. It was a good one. Do we want to do our wrap-up stuff? Absolutely, everyone. If you like the show and want to hear more from us throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account, at CMX Collective. Or you can find each of us at our personal accounts, at Dallas underscore comics, at Ann Comics, and at Lexi Lou underscore comics. If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and give us a five-star review and we will read it off on the show. And finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for the show, specifically for Dallas, at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. And tune in next week for a very fun surprise episode that I'm just going to be very vague about. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> and then, after that... We're finishing up Bone. Woohoo! Yep. True. And then for your regular scheduled program, Bone 7 through 9 next Wednesday. Thanks, everybody. See ya! See ya! Bye!